even for the casual reader of the Gospels, the cross is really no surprise. <laughs> the shadow looms across the pages, for after all, the, Jesus certainly wasn't oblivious to the accusations and the hostility that was swirling in his ministry, around his ministry. He engaged in open criticism with his opponents, and he also predicted his own death, didn't he? Yet, despite the expectation, we come to the crucifixion of Jesus in the pages of Scripture, it's still marked with shock, <laughs> betrayal, abandonment, torture, and death. That's what God had planned. It was through Jesus' willingness to serve as the atoning sacrifice that affords him the opportunity to be the redeemer for our sins. And so this evening, I think it would be fitting for us to revisit this horrific scene. While we've heard the story many times and you've probably lost track of the Good Friday services you have attended, I think it's helpful to have a renewed appreciation and some fresh lens from which to see this account. So if you would turn to Mark's gospel, if you have a Bible tonight, or if you've got a cell phone, you can flip there. If you're watching online, we're in Mark's gospel, chapter 15. As you turn there, Mark chapter 15, we're going to start in verse 20. The, all four gospels record the crucifixion of Jesus. And yet, as, as you look at these accounts, not one of them will elaborate on the crucifixion. It's pretty straightforward. Boom, boom, this happened, we're done. That's indicative of literature from the Greco-Roman world in the first century. This topic, everyone knew about, but you didn't talk about. It was so horrific. The Romans did not invent crucifixion, they perfected it. It was to inflict the greatest amount of, time, or of pain for the longest period of time. And the ancient writer Cicero states, crucifixion, it's the cruelest and vilest of penalties. So horrific that the emperor Domitian in the late 80s, 90s, will forbid the first phase of a crucifixion, which was the scourging. It was so horrific. So let's go to the text and let's look and see what Mark has here. Starting again in chapter 15, the latter part of verse 20, Jesus has been scourged. The soldiers have mocked him. And then the text states, and they led him away to crucify him. The soldiers forced a passbuyer to carry the cross, Simon of Cyrene, or Cyrenica, which is the northern quadrant of, the, of Africa, Libya today, who was coming in from the country or his field. He was the father of Alexander and Rufus. And you say, who are they? I don't know. <laughs> they were apparently known by the audience that Mark wrote to in the early church. And they brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha. And if you need to know, the text tells us, which means place of the skull. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, that is the soldiers, and he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his clothes, throwing dice for them to decide which each would take. 
It was nine o'clock in the morning. With Mark's gospel, we know that this crucifixion lasted an amazingly only six hours. A crucifixion normally was two to three days of torture. It's nine o'clock when they crucified in verse 26. The inscription of the charge, remember these were public testimonies by the Romans to state, don't mess with us, this is what we will do to you. And so there was a sign that indicated the crime, and the crime is listed here. He's an insurrectionist. He claims to be a king of the Jews, and they crucified two outlaws with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who pass by, and notice, by the way, there are no disciples. Jesus is all alone. Those who passed by defamed him, shaking their heads and saying, Aha, you who can destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from that cross. In the same way, even the chief priests, together with the experts in the law, were mocking him among themselves. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross now that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also spoke abusively to him. Now when it was noon, darkness came over the whole land. And that was until three in the afternoon. And around three o'clock, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, listen, he's, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a stick and gave it to him to drink, saying, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come to take him down. But Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and he breathed his last. No one took it. The temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion stood in front of him and saw how he died, he said, truly, this was God's son. Let's unpack this scene. And going back to verse 20, we have here the first phase that's just occurred, which is the scourging. The whip would have lead weights or stones, which, and then other pieces of leather would have glass or uh, shreds of metal. So that would strip the flesh and the, the lead weights or the stones would make it go even to deeper into the back. Often bone was exposed from the scourging. You can imagine Jesus has already been up all night facing these hearings and then the beatings and then the scourging. And so when you get to verse 21, it's no wonder he cannot carry the 75 to 100, 125 crossbeam. It wasn't the full cross that they would have the victims carry. It was just the part where they would either strap the hands to or nail them to. And Cyrene, I mean Simon of Cyrene is the one who is chosen, a bystander, and, and is ordered to help Jesus carry the crossbeam to Golgotha. So the first stage is the scourging. The second is carrying the crossbeam. And again, for Jesus, it's an impossibility. The amount of loss of blood, the stress that has already taken its toll on his body, to carry that, it's not going to happen. They brought Jesus, as the text tells us, to Golgotha, which would have been outside of the town. If you go to Jerusalem today, uh, there are two locations that are proposed. One is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. The other is the Garden Tomb. 
I believe it's the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It would have been right outside of the city walls where Jesus would have been taken. Again, either location. It still has to be outside, but it would have been very visible for the masses to see this one who has committed such crime. And notice what the soldiers do. As Jesus is brought to have the nailing occur, they says they offered him wine mixed with myrrh. Some scholars believe this was to prolong the agony for Jesus, kind of give him a little bit of energy, Gatorade, so to speak. I don't think so. These are the same soldiers that just mocked him. We're told in Matthew's gospel that this wine was mixed with gall. In other words, it's, it's old wine. It, 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 I think it's a, it's a mockery. You think you're king? Drink to this. Notice what Jesus' response is. You see it in the text? He refuses to take. He will face his death with dignity and courage. One scholar states he, he's committed to drain the dregs of the cup that his father will for him to drink. Remember the garden of Gethsemane? So Jesus is brought to Golgotha. The text tells us they will strip his clothes. They will crucify him most likely naked. We're told in John's gospel that Jesus wore a seamless robe, which would have been extremely costly, and that they don't divide. But these four soldiers, which was a normal killing squad, would get to enjoy the benefits of their labor by the spoils that they would take from those they crucify. But there's, there's something looming behind that is far more significant, and that's found in Psalm 22. It's a psalm that will be referred to several times in the crucifixion of Jesus, and part of it talks about this very thing of them dividing the spoils over this one who will suffer. And so the text tells us, again, it's nine o'clock in the morning. Remember that Jesus is brought early in the morning from the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling body. They could not uh, find enough dirt on Jesus, though they have tried to conjure up enough to argue that he's an insurrectionist. They've brought him to Pilate, and we have all of that that occurs. They know this is why the hearings were through the night. The crucifixion is at nine o'clock. They must hurry and have Pilate's approval for the event. Pilate, I think, is taking a little response of, we know Pilate's anti-Semitic. And so his sign is also, I think, a way of confronting the Jews by arguing, no, he is the king of the Jews. In fact, it's six times the text will tell us in Mark's gospel, this is the king. This is the king. We're, we're told elsewhere in John's gospel and his recording of the crucifixion that the sign is written in three languages. Aramaic, which is what Jesus is speaking at the cross. It's the language he grew up speaking. It was the one spoken around the campfire. Greek was the other language that it was in. That's the international language like English is today. And the third was in Latin, the governmental language. Clearly a testimony to the universality of Jesus reign, I would argue. He is the king of kings, whether it's in Aramaic, Greek, or Latin, and he has died for all people. Mark tells us, and we know from the other gospel writers, if you look here at verse 27, we're told that he's crucified with two outlaws, two that are criminals. Mark's wording is a little awkward here. Why do you tell us the right and one to the left? 
And I can't help but wonder if Mark's not trying to recall, help us to recall the request that James, remember James and John asked, can we sit on your right in glory? One scholar states, there is a scope for irony here for the sort of glory Jesus now enjoys and on the quality of those who share it with him and also perhaps on the fact that now the time has come, James and John are not there to fulfill their boast. But these criminals are, one on the right and one on the left. The sad part in this scene starts to occur, I think, not that <laughs> this has been difficult, but 28 is we see those all around observing this horrific scene, not hanging their head in shame or in horror, but in their tongues are wagging in mockery of what is occurring. The ha-ha that's given in verse 29 is a vindictive sarcasm in the Greek. It's just laced. In fact, it says, if you notice, it says they were mocking among themselves. The implication is they were bragging. We've done it. This is what we've looked to accomplish. And we finally succeeded taking out this Jesus of Nazareth. It's the tone that's being brought forth here. Instead of, this is Passover week. It started, it's been going on for several days now. Instead of participating in those festivities or for the Sabbath, well, the Sabbath of the Passovers the next day, which is very significant. Instead of preparing for all of those things, they're standing at the, the scene of the crime. They're joining in with all that is occurring, these religious rulers. And it's not just them. The, the, the bystanders as well as even the thieves on the cross are hurling accusations to this one who claims to be the Messiah, the King of the Jews. <laughs> I, the, look what the religious rulers state here in the text. They, they echo similar. They, they say, save yourself. But then they say, those who were crucified, they said, come down from the cross so that we may see and we may believe. They've seen many times, but they have refused to believe. Spiritual blindness is always laced with hypocrisy. <laughs> and it's clearly seen in this. The paradox of their mockery is that Jesus, if he had chosen to save himself, then he could not have served as their savior, right? If he had come down from the cross like they had requested, then they have no redemption for sin. They have no pardon that could be given because it is Christ who pays. In verse 33, the text tells us darkness now has come upon the entire globe, it would appear, not just Israel. And it's for three hours. So this cannot be explained uh, through astronomy. This is not a solar eclipse. Like I've seen people argue. It's a three hour deal. It's also in the springtime. Which you would not have had. Darkness is significant. In scripture. It's constantly seen as a sign. Of God's judgment. Think about the plagues. It was one of those that was delivered. Darkness upon the earth. For Jesus, the darkness, I think, could be argued that it's seen in the cup of God's wrath and judgment. 
Jesus has to drink it. And he is willing to do so. The text tells us in the midst of this, in verse 34, he cries out, not with a whimper, but with a loud voice. Jesus is in charge. Don't miss this. <laughs> Even Pilate is shocked when they come to report that Jesus has died. He said, that's impossible. It can't be this fast. There's no way. In fact, they normally break the legs so they ultimately will suffocate. We don't see that here. And, and Jesus is the one who makes this loud voice and he says, my God, notice the pronouns here, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How do we understand such troubling words? <laughs> How can the son say to the father, why have you forsaken me? The horrific cry must be understood in the context of Jesus' prior insistence that his death is a necessary part of his mission. The climax of which consists in giving his life as a ransom for many. Here Jesus temporarily enters into the state of God forsakenness from which he was needed to be rescued. Cranfield writes in his commentary, the burden of the world's sin is complete self-identification with sinners. Involved not merely a felt, but a real abandonment by the Father. It is in the cry of dereliction that the full horror of man's sin stands revealed. Do you remember when you did something wrong with your parents? For some of us, that's a long time ago. For some, that's maybe yesterday <laughs> or today. And, and the, the guilt, you knew you did something wrong. You, you knew you shouldn't have done this. And the disappointment you feel with the parents. How terrible it must have been for the son to face the personal wrath of the heavenly father. For all the stored up wrath of sin, God unleashes upon his son. God's holiness could do nothing less than judge sin. Christ hangs on the cross. The agony of the crucifixion, it's where we get the word excruciating, pales in comparison to the point in which he takes on our sin. He bears the, 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 the brunt of it. But how? How can the father abandon a member of the Godhead? How do you explain this? Schnabel, in a recent work on Jesus in Jerusalem, I think summarizes it well. He says, God abandoned Jesus because God cannot be where sin is. I understand that, Schnabel. Thank you. Yes, he can't, he can't look on sin. But God was where Jesus was. Jesus was on the cross where God's atoning presence, that is the mercy seat, the holy of holies, which can be recognized on account of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' death is the place of the atoning presence of God. An interesting take from Schnabel, and I think he's right. God turns his back on the son as he bears the sin. At the same point, the son is the sacrifice on the mercy seat, atoning for our sin in the presence of God. 
Schnabel goes on to state, Jesus' death is the place of the atoning presence of God who justifies sinners who believe in Jesus Messiah, who grants them redemption, the forgiveness of sin, peace with God, access to God's grace, freedom from God's condemnation. And so the cry from Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not one of despair. Because if you read Psalm 22 and you go through the rest of the psalm, the psalmist concludes with, I can trust God. He is the one who delivers. And when Jesus gives these words, my God, my God, he knows full well that his father will deliver. Of course, the crowd, Aramaic, Eloi sounds a lot like Elijah. And they think he's cried for Elijah. And that might seem strange to you. But in the first century, they thought that Elijah would return and, and save those who are righteous. The prediction was found in Malachi. Remember John the Baptist? He is the one who came like Elijah, preparing the way for the Messiah. Sadly, what happens to the one like Elijah? They refuse his message. And sadly, the Messiah will willingly bear the curse. Sour wine at this point is offered to Jesus. This is a little different. This is cheap wine made with vinegar that most likely the Roman soldiers were drinking. Again, they're attempting to help Jesus speak and he doesn't need it because notice what he says. He cries out with a loud voice again and he breathes his last. No one takes it. No one takes Christ's life. He willingly gives it. The death of a Roman, or the death of a victim in a Roman crucifixion, most medical experts believe it was, well, there's several physiological causes that ultimately it's a fixation and hypovolemic shock that Jesus would have encountered there on the cross as his organs failed hanging on a tree. But something happens. The text states, and Mark just kind of glosses right over it. He says just briefly, and the temple curtain was torn in two. <laughs> that 70 foot by about 35 foot curtain that was four inches thick, the Babylonian tapestry that hung going into the Holy of Holies is ripped from the top to the bottom. There's no way someone could have ripped it from the bottom. This didn't get snagged on a vacuum sweeper and the, the threads just came unraveled. No, 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 no. It rips from the top down. And why? Scholars debate too. I'll give you those. The first is they believe this is a divine judgment on the temple. It's done. Another option is that it gives us access to the very presence of God. I would argue it's both. Jesus has paid the price. In fact, Mark doesn't record it, but elsewhere we read in the Gospels, Jesus declares, it is finished. The Greek is very clear. It, the tense of that, it, it is finished, is indicating that that event occurred then and it has ongoing effect. It's done. And Hebrews talks about, we have access to the very throne room of God because of the price that has been paid. The curtain has been ripped asunder, right? And the centurion, who makes a declaration, he's not Jewish, he's not a disciple, he's not a religious ruler. 
He will make the first human declaration in Mark's gospel that Jesus is God's son. And thus, we are taken all the way back to Mark 1.1. Look at Mark 1.1. Just turn back. Look at this. We've come full circle. How does this gospel begin? It says, the beginning of the gospel of or about, depending on how you read that, of Jesus Christ, the son of God. We've come full circle. The centurion is declared, and, and the text tells us how he died. It reminds me of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor who was executed one month before World War II ended. The SS doctor who witnessed Bonhoeffer's death later recalled, he said, that was a man who was devout and brave. I've hardly ever seen a man who died so entirely submissive to the will of God. Well, Mr. Doctor, I have one even greater. That is Jesus Christ who died to the will of the Father. Not my will, but your will be done, he told the Father at the Garden of Gethsemane. <laughs> and so, the cross reminds us, this very familiar scene reminds us once again of the horror of our sin. John Stott states it well, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. There are two questions on the back of your program tonight. The first of these is, have you accepted God's gift? Have you come to recognize Jesus as your Savior and repented of your sin? On the cross, Jesus was reconciling the world to himself. Christ paid the penalty for sin. He was our substitution. We deserve to die. We deserve to bear God's wrath. We deserve to be separated from him and to be forever under the bondage of sin. But we are found in Christ if we've placed our faith in him. There's a powerful text that Paul pens in 2 Corinthians 5, 19 through 21. It's one of my favorite texts. Paul writes, In Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. And listen to what Paul states. He says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Wow. <laughs> How deep the Father's love for us. Peter preached it in the first sermon there, later in Acts 5, referring to God as at the right hand Christ is, as our leader and savior, because he has been killed. And hung on a tree. And that's why this is called Good Friday. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him. You, you will not earn your way to heaven. You didn't get up on the tree and die. And even if you did you couldn't have done it. Because it took a perfect sacrifice. It took the God man Christ to pay the price for you. So tonight, bend your knee, turn to him. If you know Christ as your savior, what specific area in your life is cheapening the cross? 
Charles Spurgeon challenged his congregation with these words, look to the cross and hate your sin. For sin nailed your well-beloved to the tree. Look up to the cross and you will kill sin. For the strength of Jesus' love will make you strong to put down your tendencies to sin. We need to live our lives in the shadow of the cross. Whether it's surfing the web on the internet, engaging a coworker or a classmate, filling out a business report or completing an assignment, whether it's your marriage or parenting or your parents dating, you fill in the blank. The cross should be casting a shadow over your life. It's fitting tonight that we observe communion. If you did not pick one of these cup slash wafers up, we have those in the back. We would have passed these out tonight, but due to COVID, uh, you have these before you. It's so important what occurred at Golgotha that Christ gave the church only two ordinances, and one of them was to remember the cross. To remember the sacrifice that he has made. And so tonight, this is for those of you who know Jesus as your Savior. It's a remembrance. Bend your knee, submit to him. But if you have professed Christ, then it's designed for believers who are seeking to walk in righteousness. If there's confessed sin, that needs to be confessed. We certainly wouldn't want to cheapen the elements by a life that does not reflect our glorious Savior. So that's, I've asked a couple of musicians to come. Let's just take a couple of minutes to search our own hearts, prepare for taking, observing of this sacrifice for us. Hebrews 10 stated, It was by your will that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. The bottom of the cup is the wafer. It symbolizes the body of the Christ, the sacrifice that was made Hebrews talks about the sacrifice that all of those animal sacrifices under the Old Testament Mosaic Law, they 
didn't complete. They, they were insufficient. It took an, the obedience of a perfect sacrifice to eradicate the disparity between God and men. So we, we take this bread. And Jesus said it was broken for you. And reminded, this is the body of Christ. The cup symbolizes the blood of Christ. It's a clear outward evidence that his blood was poured out when he died that sacrificial death to pay our redemption. 1 Peter 1 says, You know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold. It's a good thing. There would never have been enough but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. Scripture teaches us that the blood cleanses our conscience, provides bold access to God in worship and prayer. It allows us to conquer the accuser and rescues us from our sinful life. And so we take this cup, symbolizing the blood that was spilt on the cross, may we be reminded of Christ's blood. Oh, the cross. <laughs> Father, thank you. Thank you for the love you have lavished on us by sending your Son, knowing full well the horrific physical agony he would encounter, but far worse, the spiritual separation because he took on our sin. Lord, we thank you for redemption. We thank you for your Son who allows us to call you Father and to be yours. Thank you for the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.